Chapter 19 of Ashton Kirk, Investigator, by John Thomas McIntyre. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pete Milan. Chapter 19 The Two Reports. After dinner, the two young men settled themselves in the library. Stumpf served their coffee, and they renewed their acquaintance with the Greek tobacco. After a little time, there came a knock upon the door. Come, called Ashton Kirk. A short man, with remarkable breadth of shoulder and depth of chest, entered. He was smooth-shaven and salient of jaw and wore the air of one who was not easily balked in anything that he undertook. "'How are you, Burgess?' said the investigator. "'Good evening,' returned Burgess. He advanced and laid some neatly folded sheets at the elbow of his employer. "'Fuller was busy, and I thought I'd bring these in myself. It's my report on Hume.' "'Ah, thank you.' Ashton Kirk took up the sheets and began running his eye through them. As you get deeper into this record, did Hume keep his promise? Burgess smiled. As to possibilities, do you mean? Why, yes. Indeed, I rather think he exceeded them. The man lit the cigar which the investigator handed him and drew at it appreciatively. I went it alone on the first day. But after that I took O'Neill and Purvis on. Between us, we managed to get at something pretty definite. Has Fuller finished with Morris? He is typing his report at this moment. It will be ready in a half hour, I should think. Please tell him to bring it in as soon as he is finished. Burgess nodded and went out. Ashton Kirk continued to dip into the report here and there. Among three of them, said Pendleton, they should have sifted the man's life and adventures pretty well. As Ashton Kirk continued to scan the pages, a peculiar expression slowly came into his eyes. They seem to have done so, indeed. And rather cleverly, too, I think. Would you care to hear the report? By all means. Eagerly. The sheets were shifted into their proper order once more. Then Ashton Kirk read. A further investigation into the affairs of David Hertel Hume. No record was to be had of Hume beyond his settlement in the city in 1899. People in the same line of business were questioned closely, and those who knew anything of him at all clung to the idea that he was an American who had lived for many years abroad. So we had another look at the old passenger lists of the steamships, but this time we went further back. We knew that the simple ruse of a fictitious name would cover Hume completely, but it seemed the only thing to do, and we set at it systematically. In the records of the steamer Baltic of the Netherlands Steamship Company for the year 1897, we came upon the name of D. Pertel. Without much hope of learning anything definite after such a lapse of time, 
I inquired after this passenger. Luck was with us in the shape of an old clerk with a long memory. He faintly recalled something of the man, and after some talk got out still another book. And there it was. D. Pertell, so it seemed, had been involved in an attempt to smuggle a quantity of diamonds. Our next step was to visit the customs people. Their records were very complete. They even had a portrait of Pertell, which proved him to have been Hume beyond a doubt. Only a trifle of evidence had been secured against him, not enough to convict, and they were forced to release him. This seems to have been Hume's specialty. However, through the customs service of other countries, they had learned quite a bit about him. The authorities of Holland, Spain, and France knew him as one of the leading spirits in a system of smuggling that had been going on for years. Once Hume had been located in Antwerp, once at Hamburg, and for a long time at Bayonne. This system of contraband had been broken up just before he had been arrested by the United States Service. A number of the criminals had been convicted, but Hume, with his usual luck, had escaped once more, because of lack of evidence against him. Nothing could be learned of the movements of Hume between his arrest on the Baltic and his location here as a dealer in the curiosities of art. And, after his going into business here, he kept to himself a great deal. But the drink habit caused him to frequent certain resorts. And it was at one of these that he first met Richard Morris, father to Alan Morris. Ah, said Pendleton, so Hume knew Morris's father. I asked Fuller, in giving him his instructions, to have this fact established if he could said Ashton Kirk. That both Hume and the Elder Morris were heavy drinkers caused me to think it possible. Is that all there is to the report? Almost. The investigator turned to the pages once more, and proceeded. Hume and the Elder Morris became quite intimate, and were often seen together. But what it was that formed the bond between them, no one knows unless it be a deaf-mute named Locke, who was frequently seen in their society, and who seemed upon close terms with both. But within a year after their first meeting, Hume broke with Morris. This must have been serious, for it caused a marked enmity to spring up between them. A number of people recall that Richard Morris frequently made threats against the other, threats of personal violence and also of the law. But before anything could come of these, if he really meant them, he died. Thinking that Locke might be able to throw some light on this phase of the case, we have endeavored to locate him. Up to this time, we have met with no success. But we hope to learn something of him at an early date. Ashton Kirk laid the sheets down upon the table. There follows a list of the names of the people who have supplied this information, and their addresses, said he. Burgess is very thorough in his work. Outside the fact that Hume was a scoundrel, which we knew before, and that he was acquainted with Locke and Alan Morris's father, what does this report tell you? 
There was discontent in Pendleton's voice as he asked this question, and the investigator smiled as he made answer. That Hume knew the elder Morris supplies us with a theory as to the possible part which the younger Morris has taken in this drama. Whatever passed between Hume and the father has probably been taken up by the son. Why, yes, said Pendleton. I hadn't thought of that. Another thing, added Ashton Kirk. The report has swung like the needle of a compass and indicated a fact that my imagination suggested days ago. And that is that Hume once lived in the French town of Bayon. Pendleton frowned impatiently. I don't know whatever made you imagine that, he said. But now that you find that it is so, of what service is it? We will speak of that later, answered Ashton Kirk. Pendleton was about to say something more, but just then Fuller knocked and entered. The report on Alan Morris, said he. Ah, thanks. The investigator took the compactly typed sheets, and then he continued. Tell Burgess that he need not bother about the man Locke whom he mentions. Say that I have already located him. Very well. And Fuller left the room. For a space there was no sound save that which came from the street, and the rustle of the pages as Ashton Kirk went through them. Well? asked Pendleton, finally. What now? Morris, replied his friend, does not develop like Hume. Fuller suspected that he'd prove colorless, and so it has turned out. However, I'll read what he says. It's headed, A Second Report on Alan Morris. A very careful inquiry failed to uncover anything in connection with this young man's personal affairs that was not mentioned in my first report on the same subject. He has led a very even, uneventful life, attending strictly to business, and making every movement count in the direction of distinction as a marine engineer. However, there has been something in his manner for the last few years that has attracted the attention of those who knew him best, or came in contact with him. This took the various forms of eagerness of manner, irritability, long fits of reveries, a feverish desire for work. At his place of business, I learned that he has, for some time, had a deep interest in the reports of the patent office. His clerks say that he'd read these for hours at a time. One of them told me of how he, the clerk, once forgot to call Morris's attention to the report until the day after its arrival. Morris has always been very tolerant with his employees, but that day he burst out into a fury and threatened to discharge them all. Richard Morris, father to Allen, was a most erratic genius, as my first report indicated. His propeller, his smoke consumer, and his automatic brake were valuable commercial properties, but had all slipped from his control. Toward the end of his life, he engaged in the perfection of an invention, of which he talked a great deal, and of which he declared that he alone would reap the benefit. As Burgess will have already told you, Richard Morris knew Hume, 
The latter was a frequent visitor to a shop which the inventor maintained in the outskirts, as was the mute Locke. I have talked with an old mechanic who worked for Morris at the time. He told me that the inventor had made a stubborn fight against the drink habit, and seemed likely to conquer it up to the time that he became acquainted with Hume. After this, however, he became as much a slave to it as ever. The invention, or whatever it was, never got beyond the paper stage. For thereafter, Richard Morris spent his days in sleep, and his nights at the once famous Coffin Club. Ashton Kirk arose eagerly. There is more, said he, but it is scarcely of interest. Placing the report upon the table, he added, You have heard of the Coffin Club, Pen? Of course. It met in an underground place somewhere, didn't it? And if I remember right, it was fitted up at the Café Amour, in Paris. Something of the sort. The investigator went to a huge card system and pulled out a drawer labeled T.O. But I recall it best by the steward, whose philosophy and Irish turns of speech were so frequently quoted by the newspapers during the heyday of the establishment. Can you recall his name? I know whom you mean, answered Pendleton, but the name has slipped me. Ashton Kirk paused in the fingering of the cards. It was Tobin, said he. It came to me that it was, but I wanted to be sure. He pushed the drawer into place, looked at his friend inquiringly, and added, Suppose we go around to the Rang now and see him. End of chapter 19